0: Let's read from Ephesians 6. I'm going to pick up from verse 18. If you remember in the section just prior to this, the apostle has been warning and exhorting the Christians to engage in, to, to take on the gospel in order to strengthen them against the Satan's attacks and his, the ways that he seeks to destroy and disrupt our faith. And so that's where we come in at the end here, and he says in verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's pray. Father, we approach you now to fix our hearts and our ears upon your voice so that as Peter says, that as we pay attention to the prophetic word, like a, damp, a lamp in a dark place, Lord, the, the light of Christ will dawn in our hearts. We pray, Lord, that as we've been drawing near in worship, Lord, you will let your voice become louder in our ears to hear what you have to say to us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it is, with, for me at least, with a measure of sadness that we're coming to the end of this series. Great relief for the rest of you. It's been a little over a year that we've spent in this book. And um, I want to begin by asking why, because I think it will help us get to grips with what Paul's saying at the end of this letter? Why is Paul's writing worthy of such sustained attention so that we've taken it apart thought for thought and phrase for phrase to try and listen to what it has to say to us today? And I think you could give a couple of answers right at the outset. One of them, of course, is because the Apostle Paul who wrote the letter to the Ephesians, which by any estimation has been one of the most important written documents in history, the Apostle who wrote it was a world-shaping theologian. His mind was first-rate, there's no doubt. He was an intellectual heavyweight who knew the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures that he'd been raised to read and and digest and understand. But also he'd received extraordinary divine revelation. His mind had been open to the plan of God in ways that um, I think no one prior to that had fully seen what he saw. And so you're meeting with a man who's, who, who comes at a pivotal moment in history, his, uh, you know, he begins to minister just after the resurrection of Christ and becomes a convert not long after himself, and whose writings change history because of the weight of them and the theological heft and importance of what he has to say. And so to understand what Paul's writing, particularly in Ephesians, but also perhaps in the book of Romans, there's his two most important letters, you understand what he wrote, Um, you've gone a long way to getting a hold of what the Christian faith is really about. And uh, I'd encourage you, read and reread these letters for the rest of your lives. But quite apart from the fact that he was a theologian, the other thing you have to understand about Paul is that he was a practitioner. He was a missionary. He wasn't an academic who spent his days in books and in his study writing all the time. He wrote, but actually not a great deal. He was more of a practitioner. He was on the road. He'd been on the road when he'd left Ephesus some years before and was now writing to them because he'd gone from place to place, planting churches, preaching the gospel, engaging in discussion and debate and philosophical argument with people who didn't believe in Jesus, persuading them of the greatness of Christ. He'd been beaten. He'd been persecuted. He'd been shipwrecked. He'd gone through all kinds of things to make Christ known. And so when you meet with the mind of this man and what he had to say to us, nothing in here is mere theory. It's not just theoretical ideas. Some years ago, I read um, a fairly lengthy article about a man who had been born and raised in China and then had moved to the United States and was, had worked in a university there as a mathematician. And he had worked for 25 years on a single problem in mathematics with almost undivided focus and attention on that one thing until he finally got a breakthrough after 25 years and solved the problem he was trying to solve, published it and was recognized for his achievements, received prizes and money for that. When I read that lengthy article, I mean, quite apart from the fact that I understood nothing of the maths that was going on there, there was also a measure of admiration. That's extraordinary, isn't it? The degree of focus, but we also understand that people like that are very narrow in their scope and in their, the interest that people take in their work. There's very few people in the world who understood his achievements, as great as they are. And in a sense, you're meeting with the very opposite when you meet the Apostle Paul. He's not a man who was cloistered away. He was a man who was willing to exert himself and to suffer and to engage with all kinds of hostility in order to... Make Christ known, plant churches, obey the call of Jesus upon his life. And so when when you're immersed in his writings, you feel that they don't just inform your mind, they affect your heart. They change the way you see the world and then ultimately change how you live in it. And I hope that God has been doing that within us over the course of this past year as we've taken this apart. And I want you to be aware of this combination then as we come to a close in this letter we have encountered life-changing and worldview-shaping theology. He's given us insight into the plan of God in eternity, in calling you and desiring you, even before you were born, to be adopted into his family. We've understood the Bible's Analysis of what's gone wrong with humanity, how Paul describes us being dead in our sins but made alive in Christ, how the gospel changes you and brings you alive. We've understood something of the way God's plan and his solution for humanity is worked out in the context of the church where you see people from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue joined together under the lordship of Jesus, all the boundaries and hostility broken down, destroyed, and then all the ways that that works out into our personal lives in terms of how we, how we live as Christians in our households and workplaces and so on. We've seen all of these things in a theological sense, but all of it, and this is the, th- the point I want you to, to, to feel with me for a second, everything is mission in Paul's mind. It's all missiology. It's not just pure theology. It's not philosophy. This is missiology. And I mean by that that it's, it's, it's ideas that change your life. And it's a kind of manifesto for the transformation of the world also. In the last 150 years, to my knowledge, there were three... Manifestos that changed the course of history and had a disproportionately enormous impact upon humankind, mainly for evil. There was uh, Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto, published in 1848, which 70 years or so later began to turn the world upside down, um, beginning in, in Russia. And then there was Hitler's book, My Struggle, where he um, articulates his vision Germany, which then, of course, had its enormous impact, and of course, Chairman Mao's book, and um, the Little Red Book, which was distributed and read widely in China and it's reshaped culture there. These were dark, dark, evil manifestos, demonic manifestos, and um, that have sought, you know, according to Satan's agenda, to destroy human lives. When you get to grips with a letter like the letter to the Ephesians, what you're reading is God's manifesto for life, for freedom for peace, for transformation, for joy. And I want you to feel the Apostle's heart for mission as we come to these final comments. This is how I think we need to understand what he has to say in his parting words, because what, the way he ends his letter is not with the flourish of a, the end of an academic lecture that might meet with a kind of polite applause from an audience. But what you rather are meeting here are his urgent concerns that are always ticking in his mind for the furtherance and the advance of the gospel in the world. And so if you, brother and sister, I'm speaking specifically to you who will call yourselves followers of Christ at this point. If you are somebody who is a follower of Jesus, is it your heart to be a part of what Christ is doing in the world so that this manifesto becomes a reality? that the mission of Jesus is fulfilled in all the world. If that is your heart, then the question is, well, how how is the gospel advanced? And I want to understand Paul's strategy and concerns that he articulates at the end of this letter through that specific lens, that question. How is the gospel advanced? What What are the missional priorities that concerned him as he was writing to them, that he's calling them into as he signs off his letter? And I want to show you a number of things. The first is this. The gospel advances by your prayers. The gospel advances by your life of prayer. Hear what he says here in verse 18 when he says, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints Paul really wants to encourage you and I to understand our role on our knees for the mission of God in this world now think about your prayer life for a second i it's my conviction i think it's fair to say and i see this in my own life and heart as well as i think it just makes sense to me that your prayer life is the most accurate window into your soul. It's in prayer, isn't it? In the privacy of prayer and in the secrecy of prayer that the real you comes to the surface, if you're being honest at least in prayer. And it reveals what you care about or don't care about. It shows the true you, this part of you that is hidden from the sight of others to some extent. Your prayer life is the most accurate gauge into the life of your soul. And it seems that far too often those prayers that we articulate, especially our secret prayers, reveal the, the narrowness and the selfish concerns that we have, don't they? That so often all that really concerns us is our own most pressing immediate needs, the things that really touch our lives at that particular moment. I want to make it clear that I think it is absolutely right to pray about the things that concern and touch your life. Jesus, when he spoke about prayer, described God as a father who knows what you need before you ask him. The Lord wants to know about every detail of your worries and your anxieties, your desires. Everything should be opened up before him. No matter how small. I believe that with all my heart. But there's tragedy, isn't there? When our prayer lives end there. And what you have to Really understand and be struck by when Paul is calling upon these Ephesian Christians to engage in prayer is the expansiveness of the vision of how he saw Christians and their prayer life helping further the mission of God. He, may, he uses the word all four times, and we need to listen to this praying at all times in the Spirit, all times. This is ceaseless, constant, untiring prayer that he's describing here. Paul sometimes in his letters talks about his own prayer life, and one of the things he frequently r- remarks on is that he's praying constantly for others. How is it possible to pray without ceasing? Of course, he doesn't mean here that you never stop praying, that you are always talking to God. That would be obnoxious and difficult to go about your life if that were the case. But I think a right analogy for how it is possible to pray at all times might be the way that you engage with your, um, with your devices these days. Most of us are functioning humans, holding down jobs or engaging in the world or looking after children. In other words, we're not just totally absorbed in these things. But at the same time, you're always dipping in and out, aren't you? There are conversations taking place there. There are concerns that you're interested in. There are TikTok Um, videos to scroll there's all kinds of stuff that demands your attention and I think there's an analogy there for how Paul understood the way prayer that ceaseless can operate in the life of a Christian that you you're going about your life there are moments in which you are absolutely consumed in prayer but also you're never that far away from prayer you feel the itch and you talk to God you feel the urge and you want to just talk to him in the secrecy of your own mind even at moments And by the way, just as an aside, maybe that's one of the reasons why we struggle to pray. Because these devices have become a direct competitor with those little gaps in our minds and our attention, haven't they? Where normally we might call out to the Lord. Put them away for a while. They will help you enormously. He says, pray at all times. Here's another all. He says, with all prayer and supplication... And just a little further down, he says making supplication. It's a different word there. You could translate it petition. All prayer, supplication, petition. Now, here's what's interesting. In, In one verse, the fact that Paul's using three different words to describe the types of prayers that he's calling us to engage in shows you that prayer is a diverse thing. There isn't one way to pray. There's private prayer and there's public prayer, like we were engaging in on Wednesday night when we had such a wonderful, rowdy, raucous time of prayer together here in this room. It was so wonderful and uplifting. There are silent prayers. There are vocal prayers. There are written prayers that may help you and and help you um, experience new depths of prayer. But there's also the spontaneity of prayer. that Your prayers have to also have a spontaneity to them or else they'll not be alive, Right? There are prayers that are prayers for forgiveness that are are expressed in lamentation and sadness. And there are prayers of celebration and happiness and thanksgiving. There are all kinds of ways of praying. And Paul wants our lives to to reflect and our prayer lives to reflect the the full compass of the opportunity to to voice everything to God. Pray at all times with all kinds of prayers, he says. Then he says, with all perseverance. In other words, you are not... Willing to stop just because you haven't received an answer to your prayer as yet. There's an untiring devotion to prayer that, that, that needs to become a feature and a characteristic of the way we pray. That you are persevering in prayer. Christ commended this in his teaching on prayer. I'll be honest with you and say, I think, although there's much about prayer that I don't think I understand. Perseverance, I think, is the thing I least understand about prayer. Like, why does God want us to persevere in prayer? He heard us the first time and he never forgets anything. And the only conclusion that I can really come to is not that it affects any kind of change in him. God is changeless. But that it's for our good. It's to change you, friend. To form and transform you in the act of dependence. All times, all kinds of prayers, with all perseverance. And then he says making supplication for all the saints. When I was reading John Stott's um, little commentary on this, he said that most Christians pray sometimes with some prayers and some degree of perseverance for some of God's people. And I thought, that's me <laughs> guilty as charged. And Paul, say, Paul is saying, friends, we need to enlarge the vision for what your prayers can and should accomplish for the furthering of the kingdom. All the saints. It means an unqualified, universal vision for how your prayer can change the world. How on earth can we attain this? Well, perhaps some of it is through an element of discipline and structure, I think, that has to be a feature in your prayer life. But right in the heart of what Paul says here is this appeal that these prayers must be in the Spirit. Praying at all times in the Spirit. A Spirit-filled person is going to be somebody who, whose heart is being shaped by and formed by the work of God in the deepest, most intimate parts of your soul. And the Holy Spirit will be stirring and changing you. And it's a, it's a journey that will continue to your dying breath. But as you receive more of God's Holy Spirit... The Lord will deepen and strengthen and form your prayer life. I remember listening to um, a man who's been very influential in the UK um, as a, a leader of churches and a pioneer in many ways, who has a remarkable prayer life and was preaching on prayer. And uh, at the end of the session, I asked him, you know, how, how do you structure your own prayers? Do you, do you have some kind of prayer list through which you work through all the various concerns that have been on your heart over the years? And he looked at me slightly quizzically and said, no. And uh, he then began to explain that he seeks to pray in the spirit every day, letting his heart be moved and formed by the concerns that are on God's heart as he's on his knees before the Lord. And friend, I don't think there's anything wrong with using structure and lists and all these kinds of things as a way of encouraging you to be faithful in your prayers. But friends, we need more of God's spirit, don't, don't we? We need to be dependent on him each day. And that's the sign of life, isn't it? That you are, you are in communion with God when you come to him to pray the gospel that's my first answer then the gospel advances by your prayers here's a second answer the gospel advances also through the work of pioneers now listen to how Paul then turns his attention to himself as he's calling on them in prayer he says in verse 19 pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, he's speaking here about his own work as an apostle, an evangelist, a missionary. And the point I want you to grasp at this point is that in his missional concerns, Paul understood the role that Certain individuals, unique individuals play in the pioneering frontier work of the advance of the gospel in the world. Now, if you're not a Christian here today, let me just let you in into a very poorly guarded secret. Um, I don't want this to sound too ominous, but we're out to get you, friend. And what I mean by that is that because the Christian faith is about encountering life and joy and security that is eternal in your heart... Anyone who calls himself a Christian, if they're really genuinely uh, having encountered the Lord, they want to share what they have with you. And we'd be evil people if we didn't want that. There are religions in this world that make no effort to proselytize or to, to help people find their way into the religion. You just get born into it. Christianity isn't one of those. Christianity is the happy message of God's love for you, that can change you in the ways you need to be changed. Deal, as we've been saying, deal with your guilt. Deal with your fears. Deal with your despair and hopelessness. Deal with the darkness that comes in in your most bleak moments. Deal with all of it, and it's our happy desire that you hear and understand and actually accept that. It absolutely is. But here's another secret that goes with this. A lot of Christians feel totally inadequate in the effort of sharing the gospel, in the effort of sharing their faith with you. Because of a sense of smallness and inability and fear and the fact that so often the, the desire to share Jesus with others is met with a pushback or mockery or scorn or laughter and it's quite the norm for Christians to experience these things. But this is how the gospel spreads and I want you to understand this in the context of what I'm about to say. Because I want to offer you, speaking here to the church family, I think it's good for us to recover some kind of measure of biblical balance in this, and here's what I mean. On the one hand, it is true that all Christians, every one of us, should feel some measure of responsibility to to be those who spread the truth about Christ to others, to seek to persuade others tell them about the good things that God has done in our lives. And we see this in a a few places in the New Testament, that it wasn't just certain individuals preaching about Jesus. The whole church felt some measure of ownership about this. I think, for example, about Acts chapter 8, when uh, the Jerusalem church, which at the time had been really the only church in existence, was scattered through persecution. And as the Christians are spread out, it's like stamping out a campfire in the wilderness the sparks begin, were spread out and begin to start a forest fire because as wherever Christians go, they talk about Jesus. It says in Acts 8-4 that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So wherever God's people go, they bring Christ with them. And that's not just the role of certain individuals. Um, it's, it's the role of all of us. Similarly, I think about that passage in 1 Peter when Peter's encouraging the Christians and he tells them, he's speaking to ordinary believers, he says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So it's good that all Christians are ready to share their faith about Jesus. And if you're not able to do that, i encourage you to figure out why not. And to, to seek God for both the understanding and also the boldness to be able to do it. But listen, this is where I want to bring a measure of balance to what I'm saying here. Because I think when you read the New Testament honestly, what you'll see is that there was an immense weight of responsibility that landed on the shoulders of those individuals who felt from God an explicit calling and the anointing and the giftedness of the Holy Spirit, such that they were willing to to give everything in their life for the sake of making Christ known in the world. Paul was one of them, he was an apostle. He was an evangelist. He was a preacher. He was a communicator of this truth. And this is where, when he's calling on these Christians to pray for them, he describes his role through the the language of being an ambassador. He talks about himself as an ambassador in chains. He uses that word also in 2 Corinthians. And it's this image of somebody who is bringing Christ's peace terms to, to hostile kingdom, to hostile people and saying, you can be reconciled with God, and I'm here as a representative and a messenger of what Christ has done and his authority and lordship over the universe. You must receive him and, and, and recognize his lordship in your life. He saw himself as an ambassador, but also an ambassador in chains, because he, he's literally imprisoned at the point of the, when he's writing this. Now, here's what I'm trying to help you understand, friends. That there is, of course, the gospel spreads through all of us, But there's also the reality that God uses individuals in unique, potent, world-changing ways. And that should be celebrated. And it brings some measure of relief to us all, doesn't it? So two challenges come out of this. One is this. Your biggest contribution to the furthering of the gospel may not be so much your direct work of sharing Christ with others, though I hope all of us will and are prepared to do that. But the indirect work that the whole church is called to in praying for those individuals whom God has set aside for this task. Anyone who has given themselves 100% to the call of God in this will tell you that they feel like they face spiritual warfare on a daily basis, that there are many discouragements, that there are many things that dishearten and would derail ministry. And therefore, there is a desperate need for the church to take seriously what Paul tells the Ephesian Christians here to do, which is pray for those laborers who are at work busily in the harvest field. Pray for them. What does he ask for prayer for? He asks for prayer for, for a message, words to be given me, and for boldness. I find this amazing. Because he doesn't pray for freedom from being in prison, he doesn't pray for health. He doesn't ask them to pray for, for, for any of these things that you might assume he would want. He, he just wants Christ to use him where Christ has put him. Give me the right words to say, Lord, so that I can be effective where I am. And let me be bold so that I won't hold back in preaching about you. So, brother and sister, listen. The challenge here is, even if we're going to have limited and minimal impact ourselves always ready to share the gospel, but maybe also some measure of frustration that we don't see the response we want, all of us are called to enlist in the furthering of the gospel through prayer, as I've already been telling you, praying for these pioneers, men like Paul who exist in this world today, your own pastors and leaders and those who are ready. Here's another challenge, by the way, that comes through here. Christ is constantly enlisting. And if you feel the call of God in your life to some kind of pioneering work in the missions of of the gospel, you can run, but you can't hide. The Lord is after you, friend. And I want to encourage you, there is no amount of sacrifice that isn't worth offering to the Lord to say yes to him. And to give yourself to him. The gospel advances through pioneers. It's my hope, my prayer that our small church will be a family in which many pioneers are raised up to touch the nations, and that our prayers will strengthen and support and encourage and send people to do amazing things. The gospel advances through prayer. It advances through pioneers. Here's my third uh, idea here that comes through. The gospel also advances through partnerships. Listen to what he says here in these closing remarks. Verse 21, he says, So that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. The gospel advances through partnerships. Now, who was Tychicus. He was most likely the postman, first of all, who took this handwritten letter that Paul had composed, probably mostly through dictation. Maybe he was the man who himself wrote down Paul's dictation. Took it with him on the journey many hundreds of miles to Ephesus to deliver to that church, and then also to be copied and distributed to the churches in the region. He was a postman at one level, but he was more than that. The little we know of Tychicus tells us that he was... A companion of Paul in his missional work. A disciple, no doubt, of Paul. A learner at his feet. And he calls him here a faithful minister, or servant. Someone who was actually engaged in the ministry of the gospel. So probably the most likely way to understand this is that as he brought the letter with him from, from Paul's hand to Ephesus and delivered it to the church... He actually was then there in the Sunday gatherings reading it out and explaining it in an extemporaneous manner, just out loud, spontaneous manner, enlarging on and helping them understand the things that Paul had written in this dense way in his letter. Because he sat at his feet as a a kind of rabbi and learned from him. I love the image of this and the, the personal and human connection that Paul had with this church. And here's why I want us to notice this, because it is a beautiful window into how the New Testament church operated. You see, this was long before denominations were formed. The Catholic church didn't exist. The Orthodox church had never been imagined. And certainly there were no Presbyterians, no Baptists, no Independents. None of these groupings existed at the time. There were just these pockets of believers with this personal connection with the apostles who traveled and preached about Christ and bound, therefore, to other churches with this this relational dynamic that was going on between them. Now, why does that matter to us? I don't have a ton to say on this today, but I want you to understand that this is absolutely our heart to want to see this culture flourish within our church. Firstly, within the congregation. That we understand ourselves as being partners together to encourage and love and support each other in the work of what God is doing in the world. But then also, friends, in the, taking in the bigger scheme of what God is doing. Our church is actively part of a, a partnership of churches. You've heard a number of men come and preach to you over the course of the summer from those churches. Some of you have come from those churches to be part of grace. You know, Most of you came from common ground in Cape Town, I know that, and I sometimes think that we are the 10th congregation of common ground because of the number of common grounders here, but it's blessed us over the years. We give to the work of God, and so you, some of your tithe that comes to grace, a portion of it is, uh, is then sent forward in order to help church plants in other contexts through partnerships. And friends, I think we've only just scratched the surface of what God is going to do in and through us. From before we planted this church, it was our heart and desire that we would be able to connect with churches in a really dynamic way in the future to encourage planters, to help send out missionaries, to then support them over decades and to help them with their work of of, of establishing churches. And and I think this has only just begun for us and we're longing for God to accelerate that work. But I just want to plant those ideas in your mind now that this is the way church functions in the New Testament. And it's a beautiful, dynamic, living, alive thing. And this brings me to the last thought I want to share. The gospel advances into the world by piercing and penetrating more deeply into your heart. Listen to how he blesses and prays for these Christians as he signs off. Verse 23, peace be to the brothers and love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Now, at first glance, it would look as though all of the missional concerns that he's just been talking about, praying for God's work, praying for himself, the partnership of Tychicus, traveling to them and encouraging them, and all that that entailed. It seems like the missional vision has somewhat faded into the background as he now prays for them and their own spiritual health and vitality. But listen, I think the very opposite is true. And this is a dynamic you have to understand about the way the Christian faith operates. Think about the opposite of this. Think about what happens in your life when you don't experience what Paul's talking about here. He prays for peace and love and faith and grace. When God's people are not infused with and alive with the realities of the gospel that it touches our hearts in an experiential way, what happens? Everything that I've been talking about today just dies. Prayer becomes a dead formality. The evangelism that we've been speaking about becomes a miserable fruitless endeavor yeah. and the partnerships that churches experience between them just become formal and legalistic and dry and lifeless and I, you can think here with me of you know those those poor souls who belong to some of those cultish spin-offs of Christianity, like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, who will be very urgent in desiring to share what they believe with you, but you don't have any illusion here that they are largely driven by fear and dread. And the very opposite is true within Scripture. When you see churches and Christians alive with a longing to make the world aware of who Christ is and how good he is... It's because the gospel has done its work in their hearts, first of all, and they are happy people. That God's peace, as Paul prays here, is experienced. That there's love with faith and grace. you're you're celebrating the gospel. It's an experienced reality for you. It's not just an intellectual thing and you're not compelled by a sense of duty. Christ has made himself real to you. His Holy Spirit has come near to you. You feel full of his life and his joy. And I'm conscious, of course, of the, the reality of the seasonal element, the things that we go through in life, the ups and the downs and all of that. But the abiding, strongest reality of your life is that God is becoming more and more alive and real to you in your experience and your relationship with Him. And that's what He wants for them. And when that happens, churches and Christians become a force and a power in this world to change the world. Rigby Wallace is a, the founding pastor of that church in Cape Town uh, that I mentioned. And he has a wonderful expression that I'm going to paraphrase here or, or butcher or whatever. But he, he talks about the two frontiers of the gospel. And says that the gospel must advance to the outermost parts of the earth and the innermost parts of our souls. And I want to leave you on this thought, friends. We want to be a missional people. We want, we want this world to know Christ. And we want to be part of what Jesus is doing in, in, in furthering his lordship and changing lives and turning them around. But make no mistake. The first thing, the vital thing, is that Christ must come and make his residence in you if you're not a Christian. That he must, you must know him. And that as even if you are a Christian... That it's in in the depth of your love and your intimacy and your joy and happiness in Him. Maybe you've been feeling like your spiritual life has been dead for a a long time. Christ wants you to know life again. He wants to wake you up. He wants you to cherish and to to find happiness in Him again. He wants to bring you back to life. And He wants that life to be the most all-consuming obsession. And it will change you and it will call upon you to make radical choices and sacrifices. But you will feel that it is all entirely worth it because he's better than anything else you've ever encountered. Let me just share with you briefly a story of a man who illustrates this. Most of you will have heard of John Wesley. Who, when he was at Oxford, founded his holy club. A group of very intense young men um, who were absolutely passionate about wanting to be obedient to Christ. And the Holy Club were, were incredibly disciplined in their structure of their day, in the way they prayed, in the way they studied the Bible, in their gatherings. And they were nicknamed the Methodists. It was a kind of a, you know, a way of describing what they were doing. They were methodical in their approach to faith. And John Wesley, is he had been ordained as an Anglican uh, vicar, also became a preacher and was often found in great effort to make Christ known in this world. And he, he traveled. He traveled across the United States on a missionary journey to go and preach about Jesus over there. And the thing that characterized his preaching was that it was completely fruitless. It didn't matter how hard he preached about Jesus, people didn't become followers of Christ. They weren't interested. And at a certain point in Wesley's life, he was part of a Bible study in which they were reading Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. And they were reading the introduction to Martin Luther's commentary to the book of Romans in a place called Aldersgate Street, which you can still find in the city of London here. And as the introduction to this commentary was being read out loud in this Bible study group, he said how he felt his heart strangely warmed. He suddenly, he suddenly experienced the work of God's Holy Spirit and saw Christ and the grace and the love of Christ for him for the first time, I think. I think you could really mark it as a point of true conversion when he was born again. And all the efforts that had been dry and fruitless came to an end at that point because John Wesley now was a lover of Christ. The peace... Faith, love, and grace penetrated his heart. And from that point on, his preaching changed the world. Because life is visible, isn't it? When you see someone who's alive to Jesus, when the Holy Spirit's in them and moving through them, there's something so attractive and contagious about that. And the Lord wants to do that in you, in us. May God spare us from dead endeavor and work on his behalf. And may he fill us with his spirit and with his life that we might be a church that is impactful and dynamic in shaping the world through the gospel. Why don't you bow your heads and let's pray together.